Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I will be speaking with Linda Gordon. She's Professor of History and Humanities at New York University. Gordon and her co-authors, Dorothy Sue Cobble and Astrid Henry, have written Feminism Unfinished, a short, surprising history of American women's movements, published by Live Right Publishing. As a collaborative effort, the book documents the women's movement since the winning of the franchise in 1920. The aim of the book is to recapture feminism as a social movement addressing a diversity of issues and demonstrates its influence in changing American society. The author's definition of feminism or feminisms is capacious, in which it is defined as an outlook. Each of the authors covers one of three feminist eras of the last 100 years, social justice, women's liberation, and the third wave. They take on numerous myths, including the idea that the movement is dead, or unnecessary, hampering how the public understands the movement. By focusing on less-known women active on the ground, rather than political leaders, they challenge the assumption the movement was largely white, upper-middle-class women. By emphasizing intersectionality, the authors forward women's differing concerns and ever-expanding agenda. They challenge the idea that feminism is only about women, as they occupy a complex of affected relationships. Finally, they examine the myth that gains in leadership and power by a few elite is a victory for all women. The authors have enlarged the feminist tent and recovered a wide social movement with a vital future. Here is my conversation with Linda Gordon. Now let me introduce the author, Linda Gordon. Hello, Linda. Hi. Welcome to the show and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. You and your co-authors, Dorothy Sue Cobble and Astrid Henry, have produced a much-needed book, it covers a lot of ground. I was amazed at how much you covered. Um, but first, before we get into the book, I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you and your co-authors came to write this book and do this collaborative effort, which I love. I wish we had more collaborative um, work this, that, like this. So how did you write? come to write Feminism Unfinished? Well, I've been teaching for years. Uh, my field is women's history, but I'm usually writing about other topics that have to do with women. But I think it's mainly as a teacher that I realized how lacking uh, the available material was about the women's movement. Um, I've come to see that I, I believe it is the most misunderstood movement compared, for example, to the civil rights movement or uh, to the gay and lesbian rights movement, I think more people have more myths about the women's movement than they do about some of these others. And secondly, as a teacher, I'm always interested in books that are brief and that are very clear and that are not written for other academic experts. 
So I think those two things coming together uh, were the germ uh, that that germinated in this book. So uh, tell me about your co-authors. How did you three get together? Well, it's an interesting story. Dorothy Shukabel I've known for quite some time. She is primarily a historian of women in the labor force uh, and in the labor movement, and I actually happen to have been an editor of an earlier book of hers because it was published in a series that I uh, co-edit. It's a book that she wrote called The Other Women's Movement. But I didn't know Astrid Henry at all. What happened is that I was searching for someone who had a lot of knowledge about the third and so-called fourth wave. In other words, the, the really the aspects of the women's movement that have arisen since the 1980s. And I was just reading a lot, and I came across her book, Astrid Henry's book. And I thought, this is absolutely the best thing. This is just terrific. And I emailed her completely out of the blue. It was really a risk because to try to do something that involves as much closeness as uh, writing something together with someone, um, normally you wouldn't advise doing that with someone you didn't know pretty well. Uh, But miraculously, it turned out wonderfully. Um, Astrid is actually not uh, technically a historian. She's a, a literature scholar, but she is um, also a women's studies professor, and um, she's uh, just, she's incredibly smart. She was incredibly wonderful to work with, so it was just a stroke of luck, and it was a stroke of my luck that she agreed uh, to work with me on on something like this. Well, it worked out beautifully. Um, I was really surprised how all the essays, the three chapters that you have, just flowed together wonderfully. And you, it wasn't redundant. It wasn't, uh, you know, it, you had a coherence to the whole argument. So what is the main argument or objective of the book? Um, you cover a lot of ground, but what holds it together, do you believe? I think the overarching umbrella is to correct widespread myths. But uh, some of those are, are really central to the book. One is that the women's movement is not an elite movement and never has been. Uh, there's a widespread myth that sort of associates it with um, highly privileged, uh, white, exclusively white, uh, upper middle class to wealthy women. And that's not the case. Another uh, more, you might call it a geographical myth, um, one of the things that, that I have learned is that too much of the story of the women's movements have been told from the point of view of New York City. And that's particularly true of what we call um, second wave feminism, the feminism that was so strong in the 1970s. Um, the this story of New, New York City might be represented in many ways by someone like Gloria Steinem, who is a really very important uh, person who just uh, helped promote the women's movement so much. But the fact is that those people who became identified as the leaders of the women's movement were often journalists. 
And that's understandable because as journalists, they had access to the mass media uh, and they knew how to talk to the mass media and they knew how to promote the movement and to do this extraordinary thing which Gloria Steinem did, which was to create Ms. Magazine. But the fact is that New York is very unrepresentative and we wanted to look a lot at what the movement looked like in the rest of this very large country, uh, not only in big cities, but in some cases in small towns, where it really looked very, very different. Um, the, the third thing I would say is that there has been a tendency to think of feminism as something that's most associated with issues of sex and reproduction. And those issues were, of course, just enormously important. But the women's movements have often always been focused on much more bread-and-butter economic issues, uh, issues of wages, issues of uh, who can get bank loans, um, issues of how uh, how disabled women and otherwise needy women can get access to various kinds of entitlements. So we wanted to, um, to a slight extent, to try to make people understand the breadth of the issues that, that uh, women feminists were concerned with. Well, um, one thing that I noticed right off the bat, the, the way you define feminism as an outlook. And, and what do you mean by an outlook? And this is a very broad definition. And are there any dangers in that definition? Well, I think there might be some dangers. Um, but um, first of all, we wanted to show that feminism is something that has changed historically. Uh, for example, in the 1800s, in the 19th century, people we call feminists never dreamed of thinking that men should share in doing housework. Uh, it was just not within their uh, realm of possibility, right? Uh, they, um, they never really dreamed of making big, big inroads into parts of the labor force uh, that men had usually dominated. So you, we have to understand that feminism cannot come up with a single neat definition because it's constantly changed. Secondly, it's also something that varies according to categories of women. Uh, for example, women of color in this country have never been able to fight for women's rights in a way that didn't also include a fight against racism. And so struggling against racism was as important a part of their understanding of what a women's movement should be um, as anything else. And that leads to another point, which is that feminists don't always agree with each other. Uh, there have been terrible disagreements. And there have also been, um, you know, it's not as if feminists have always been wonderful. There were white feminists who wanted to exclude black women from their groups in the American South. Um, that's completely reprehensible, and we condemn it. But on the other hand, you can't not admit that they were also certain kinds of feminists, right? So feminists can be racist. There are feminists who are 
peaceniks and there are feminists who are very pro-war. So we're first of all, we're trying to uh, uh, understand something that is rich, changing, and also complicated. Okay, so... But the, uh, the question is, so what is this outlook? How would you define it? Is it uh, women who are championing other women, women who are advocating for participation of women? Oh, I think, it, uh, I think it's more ge- generic and general than that. I think a feminist outlook is one that thinks that women should have more rights and more respect. And you notice I don't say equality because there was a time when, and there are places in the world today where there are feminists who would not go so far as to say they ought to be equal to men. I think most American feminists today would. But um, it has been simply an outlook that starts with the understanding that women are not being treated as well as they should be and that we need to make changes in that condition. I know that sounds very generic and very vague, but I think it's the only way we can use the term uh, that really encompasses all of the many, many different kinds of women who've been fighting for women's rights. So it seems that your definition allows for very uh, politically conservative women who would agree, yes, that women need more respect, that women need to, to have certain rights secured, uh, you don't necessarily have to be politically liberal. Is that correct? I think, I think that's true. I think it is true, however, that in fact, the great majority of feminists have been politically left of center and continue to be. And I think there's a reason for that. And that is because feminists are challenging usually the status quo. And many, many conservatives don't want to do that. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to empower uh, people who are at at the bottom, um, but you know, I th- I think a really good example of this problem is the the very popular new book by Sheryl Sandberg called Lean In, um, which is really directed against a very very tiny proportion of women who are working in the corporate sector and who face what they call a glass ceiling, who don't. Uh, find it hard to be uh, to rise up in the the ranks of people in the corporate sector as high as they would, and so she uh, coined this phrase "lean in," which is about encouraging women to be more assertive. Um, there's nothing wrong with no one being more assertive. I'm entirely in favor of that, but the fact is that that is a very uh, thin stratum of what I would consider conservative. Feminism, and it isn't really relevant to most of us. Uh, you know, a woman who is a clerk at Walmart is going to get exactly nowhere by trying to be assertive in negotiating a wage raise. And that is even true of me. I'm a professor in a big university. I don't get a wage raise by trying to individually negotiate with one of the deans. It just doesn't work that way. Um, and What I think that the Sheryl Sandberg lean-in phenomenon represents is a kind of misconception of feminism as a a matter of individual struggle as opposed to group politics. 
where feminism has really been successful is where women have get, gotten together in large groups and really made collective complaints, collective efforts towards really changing things for whole large groups of women. And I think that this is uh, one of the things that I liked about your book was the fact that you talked about feminism as a social movement. And we're used to reading, you know, feminist history, especially the second wave, uh, that really deal with the political aspects, you know, getting legislation passed and the political players and right. political leaders. And by looking at it as a social movement, I think that you're able to encompass many more women and also what you call feminisms instead of one feminism, you know, many feminisms. And uh, I did like that about your about the book. Um, so as a social movement, why did you why did you decide to go that route instead of continuously looking at the political advancements and what else is left to be done politically? I think uh, partly because there is more literature existing about about the realm of politics, but it's more because, and I think this is implicit in what you just said, I mean, for example, uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, wheeled and dealed very effectively to get the Civil Rights Act and then the Voting Rights Act passed. But nothing would have happened without a massive civil rights movement, which was sending a big message to Americans that African-American people were simply not going to put up with uh the humiliations of second-class citizenship and economic discrimination anymore. The same thing happened with the women's movement. There were a lot of really important uh, legislators who were really working to establish uh, equal pay laws, laws against uh, uh, violence against women, etc. But none of that would have happened if it hadn't been for literally millions of women across the country organizing and protesting in various ways, whether it was through demonstrations or petitions or letters to the editor or uh, changing curricula in schools. Uh, and I do think Americans sometimes fall into the, uh, the trap of thinking that change comes from the top down. And the fact is that politicians and people at the top have to respond to very large movements from the bottom, so to speak. So uh, this reminds me of something um, I think that uh, Henry talks about, is the fact that feminism is, has been in the air for quite a, some time now, and that lots of people who would not even identify themselves as feminists, who don't even use the word, have already have sort of a consciousness, a feminist consciousness, I would, I would call it. And... This is something that you, uh, I think, is throughout the book, is how many women were actually operating without that awareness that they're doing a feminist act. Oh, yes. And, and so I'm wondering about how, what does anti-feminism look like in that kind of in society when everyone, I think even the most conservative, politically conservative or even cultural conservative people would now say they want their daughters to go to college. Yes. Uh, it would be a very rare fringe group who would say, I don't want my daughter to get an education or be able to get a divorce if she yes. wants one. Yes. I, I think that that is so fascinating that even the most conservative people, I think, would, would say, I'd reject feminism, but I want my daughter to be able to get a divorce. 
Yes, and you know, this this raises a really interesting question. Um, and that is, should one use the term feminist? Um, it, you know, it, there's a very common phrase that many people who've thought about this observed, and that is when you talk to people that so many people say more or less, I'm not a feminist, but... And then what comes after the but is things like, well, I certainly believe in equal wages, or I certainly believe that women have to have access to birth control, or whatever it is. In other words, they go on to show that they agree with most of what you would call a feminist platform. Um, I, I, in fact, I think that some of the people who are the most vociferous in saying they're not feminists are on the issues the most in agreement with a uh, feminist platform. And so some people have sometimes counseled, well, don't use the word feminism because that's a kind of scare word. It's like uh, what it was in the 1950s where calling someone a communist would, uh, you know, really raise everyone's hackles. Um, I think we all felt differently about it. Um, the three of us who wrote this book, we felt that there is a reason that we need to take that term feminism and try to remove it from being from the you know the status of being a kind of scare word the f word because if we don't have that word it becomes very difficult for us to understand our historic connection with all the millions of women that came before us for several centuries and not to mention the women who will come after us. And it isn't just women, it's also men, because there are tons and tons of male feminists. Um, that it, it is an honorable word and a very, very honorable cause, and one that we should uh, not try to hide from, even if, if it means that in the short term we might... Um, uh, you know, el eliminate some supporters who can't go along with that particular word. Because, it it yeah. is also part of that very, very dangerous um, uh, myth in America that feminism has been a white thing because there not only have been very strong black feminism and Latina feminism and so on and so forth, but uh, the the association of feminism with white women has done a lot to divide people. And I think you just brought up a point that, uh, that one of the problems that we still have after all this women's history that has been done, how little people know about women's history. And I think, I mean, it's amazing to me. Uh, people think it's been always this way. <laughs> and they don't realize how, sh how short that history actually is in terms of, uh, it's long in terms of how long it took, but how short it's been since women have had the, the rights that they currently have in terms of the history of the world or the United States. I think that's right. And I think uh, this is one of the two reasons uh, that we wanted, ironically, to keep our book very short. Uh, that was a, a, a premise that we had from the very beginning, that this has to be a short book. Uh, one, because we really hoped to get a widespread readership. And uh, we wanted to keep it inexpensive and easily accessible and a book that you would think that you could get through. And the second reason, what had to do with teaching. Uh, we wanted a book 
that was short enough that teachers could use it as an additional resource in a class. And we're thinking not only college, but also high school, that if someone was teaching a course in, say, American history in general, they might not be able to use a 300-page book uh, in that course because it's too long, but they might be able to use uh, a book of about 150 pages. Right, and I think part of yeah, part of the beauty of this book is that it covers so much in such a short, and it's also very accessible in terms of the language, so that I think uh, a layperson, uh, the general public, could read this book and get a lot out of it. I hope so. Uh, I've always been, in everything I've written, I've been very hostile to um, academic jargon and the use of big fancy words as, as a way of, you know, gaining, <laughs> raising the status of what you're writing. I'm really very, very committed to writing everything in very plain English. And that's a lot easier for historians to do than other people. We don't really have a jargon. And, um, for example, I recently wrote another book um, in which my uh, editor uh, challenged me uh, to use to write the whole book without using the word gender. And uh, to do so because to many people that sounds like a certain kind of academic jargon. I don't know that I completely achieved that. I think I did have to use the word once or twice, but I, I thought it was really something good to try. It was an interesting exercise. Which brings up the whole uh, issue here is how has the differentiation between sex and gender actually uh, affected how we perceive feminism or women in general? Because the gender has, is and and sex have become very fluid in, in in theory, and I'm wondering if that has undermined the whole category of woman by which feminism was built. I mean, feminism was originally built in the belief that there was such a thing as woman. <laughs> Or women with distinct, uh, characteristics and, you know, handicaps and culture. And once you undermine that because of gender, uh, theory, I wonder if what the future holds. That's one thing that came up in my thinking about what you wrote. I think that's a very serious concern. For example, uh, probably most women's studies programs throughout the United States have changed their names to include the term gender. And there's one thing about that I think is very good, which is to, the, the uh, challenge to understand that men, too, have a gender and that masculinity is something that we need to think about, how it is constructed and how it influences our world. For example, um, I think we need a lot more thinking about the relationship between masculinity and all kinds of violence, whether it's local domestic violence or whether it's the violence of a group like ISIS or or large nations. But there has been a downside. I think that for many of these, in these women's studies programs, they uh, what they teach and what the work is that goes on has been uh, increasingly focused just on theory, on kind of very abstract notions, what is gender, how does gender work, in, in very vague ways, and a tendency to leave, uh, leave out or to de-emphasize the really concrete uh, discriminations against women, the concrete problems that women face, um, 
so that people like myself as an historian who, who deals in the concrete, you know, I'm always interested in the facts, um, we uh, feel that there's a problem there, that these are not women's studies programs that are necessarily helping young women and men to face the world that they live in. Well, do you think um, that that's... A, but on it, the other hand, uh, let me just say yeah. one more thing. Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt. It's all right. It's very interesting about how the word gender has become so widespread. Sometimes you can see the power of a movement by looking at how it changes language. A really good example is the word sexism. Right now, everyone in America knows the word sexism, what that means. Uh, That word didn't exist until the women's movement created it. Uh, It's very similar with the word gender in that I think a very high proportion of people today understand that gender is something that is uh, created in people by how they're raised and socialized, that it's not a matter of the body. Um, And so in that sense, it's a great sign of the achievements uh, of the women's movement. But it absolutely does, as you say, tend to take the the take the attention away from the possibility of women as uh, social actors, as people who can actually create change in the society. And I think uh, this is, I wonder if this is a problem of the West, because I think in, you know, uh, we talk, you talk in your book about global feminism and uh, how far flung it has become. And I think people in Asia, women in Asia or in Africa or Latin America are, they're, you know, their their lives are limited by the definition woman uh, and what yes. a woman is. And to tell these women, of course, that gender is fluid and even sex is fluid, <laughs> and they're going, oh, really? Because they're living a very concrete experience of womanhood that is very limited. So I'm kind of wondering if Western feminism with all the gender theory that we've adopted really can grapple with the real concrete problems of real concrete women all over the world. That's. I agree with you. And I think one lesson we can draw is that uh, feminism always has to be created in a particular context by the people who live in that particular context. And we absolutely cannot define uh, what can be feminist in Egypt. Uh, that has to come from uh, Egyptian women. Uh, a really good and, and somewhat bitter example of that is the campaign against female genital surgery, which mm-hmm. is still widespread in some countries, and there were Americans who sought to campaign against it. And it really didn't work uh, because that was so easy for people to target as a foreign imposition. Uh, that movement had to come from below, from those women who lived there, and it has had great success there. Uh, but we also have to understand that that women have different uh, priorities. Uh, for example, we in the West may think that one of the meanings of feminism is that women are not only mothers and that we shouldn't be associated only with raising children and that men should be involved with raising children too. But for example, in large parts of Africa, the 
absolute highest priority of the women's movement is getting health care and education for their children. I think we have to understand that this is a feminist priority for those people. It comes out of their role as women. Uh, they are people who live in a culture in which they alone are responsible for their children and wanting the best for their children absolutely comes directly out of their situation as women. Uh, and that's just another example of why we have such a capacious uh, definition of what counts as feminism. Uh, one thing that, uh, that I noticed that was kind of notably absent in the book is the, this, the whole idea of choice. And I don't mean uh, just, you know, abortion, but I mean we've made a very big deal out of choice. You know, women should be able to choose who they marry, or whether they have abortions or not, whether they have cosmetic surgery or not, whether they wear the, the, women, the Muslim women wear, wear the headscarf. You guys do not talk about choice very much. And I'm wondering how choice spills over into a, a global setting when we think, how can women make these kinds of choices that seem to us in the West as being anti, anti-woman? I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, some of it is that, you know, we just couldn't cover everything and it wasn't one of the themes we chose. But I think the fact is that, you know, to the, to use the word choice as a slogan implies that people are free to really make choices when, in fact, uh, for most people in the world, our choices are very, very constrained. Uh, you know, if, uh, for example, in the United States, one of the things we know from poll data is that very, very large numbers of women with small children would prefer to be employed part-time. But they can't do that because they can't earn enough from working part-time because most part-time jobs don't have benefits. So to talk about what they're doing is choose whether they're choosing to be in the labor force or choosing to stay home is the, in the, with their children is a choice that only very, very privileged women have. Um, and I think this is true in just every arena that when we say choice, we sort of insinuate that there's really a free, um, a free set of preferences that one can choose among. And most of us don't have that um, set of choices. Um, I think it's even true, uh, that I would argue, and I think a lot of other people would, that, that choice becoming the slogan of the abortion rights movement was also a mistake because when women are making a decision uh, about what to do with an unplanned pregnancy, um, there are so many constraints uh, about what um, uh, surrounds the decision to either uh, not have an abortion or to have an abortion, that um, choice kind of uh, mystifies the issue. It's it's almost like uh, culture often can act as uh, duress. You end up yes. making certain choices, uh, for instance, to have a child or not to have a child, because there are people around you who are in expectations around you about what you have to do. And so it makes you wonder how free women can actually be in making those choices. But then we don't want to deny their agency either. Right. I, th- I think what the way you just put it is really important because I think the other thing about choice is that it's a very 
it's based on an individualist assumption that we are all individuals uh, making choices kind of in a, uh, in a vacuum um, and that we are all subject to group uh, pressures, to the force of tradition, to what is considered acceptable and not acceptable in our social, uh, social world. Um, and, and that's, again, it, it doesn't have to be the meaning of choice, but it does have those uh, connotations of that kind of individual isolation that I think are really wrong. I want to get back to uh, some of these chapters. The first chapter by Dorothy Sukabal on basically the labor feminist, uh, the social, which, which she's calling the social justice feminist of post-1920. I found that that chapter, I've read her book before, and I found that chapter very interesting about uh, how labor women understood uh, what they were fighting for, very different from what came after. So would you plus, please talk a little bit about that, about what they were fighting for? And it wasn't equality like we think, sameness. No, right, right. Well, first of all, I think we have to start with understanding that most of the history books imply that after the the uh, passage of the woman suffrage amendment, after women got the vote in 1920, that there was uh, nothing really happening uh, on the women's rights front between about 1920 and about 1960. And it turns out that that's wrong, but that they thought that because they were looking for a kind of movement that they had seen in the past, which was the women's suffrage movement. And they weren't looking at the labor movement. And that the fact of the matter was that in those years, in those four decades, that is where most of the action was. Because as an industrializing country, uh, we were rapidly drawing more and more and more women into the labor force. And they were extremely discriminated against there. But it's also important to understand that the women were being drawn into the labor force not because uh, they were trying to get away from domesticity, but because increasingly their families needed their income. And so in a certain sense, the the fight for uh, better treatment and better wages for women in in jobs was a fight that was conducted on behalf of families. Um, and in fact, I think we also need to look at something that's a little bit the reverse today. You know, we we can claim with pride that between, uh, say, uh, about 1970 when the women's movement really started to reach its peak and today women's the women's wages have increased as a percentage of men's wages right in the early days we used to say it was 59 cents that women earned to every dollar that men earned and today that gap is up to uh, 80% so women earn 80 cents for every dollar that men earn but the fact is that during that period men's wages have declined in their actual buying power. And so even though women have gained some, the families that they live in have not necessarily uh, become better off. And the fact is that most women are economically involved with men. Uh, and this will continue to be the case 
uh, even if as we have more equality and freedom for gays and lesbians, you know, women have fathers and brothers and husbands and boyfriends. And so we really need to keep in mind that it's uh, this is something that should not be a zero-sum game uh, between how much women earn and how much men earn. And that was true in this earlier period, too, that uh, by fighting for better conditions for women, uh, women were fighting for better conditions for their whole families. What was interesting, too, was that the, the fact that the labor feminists were, for the most part, for most of their history, opposed to the ERA. Yes. And Alice Paul and her uh, equality feminism. Um, tell, talk about, for the audience, why they were against the Equal Rights Amendment. They were against the Equal Rights Amendment because there had, they had fought for and won a number of very special protections for women in the labor force, which they considered extremely valuable and which might be struck down by an Equal Rights Amendment. These protections included things like, for example, the amount of weight that a, a woman worker would be allowed to carry. Uh, they, uh, there were a laws that prohibited uh, employers from forcing female workers to work at night because of the dangers of women having to travel to and from work at night. They, uh, some states had an eight-hour-a-day law um, that uh, uh, affected women only. Um, they were trying to prevent the super-exploitation of women. Um, what happened is that as the labor market changed uh, by uh, the 1970s, the whole situation had changed. Women didn't need those kind of protections as much, um, and uh, people were more concerned to have protections for all workers. So, for example, we began to have a stronger uh, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health set of regulations that protect all workers from uh, from certain kinds of uh, harsh conditions at work. Um, but it's true that it was also more complicated by just traditional ideas because in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, uh, there was a lot of fear in this country that if you put women into very male-type jobs, they would become defeminized, Right. And I think that opposition to the ERA also rested on those kind of ideas, even among feminists, that you didn't want uh, to have a kind of sameness between women and men. Now, um, in the second chapter you, that you wrote about women's liberation uh, moment, you call it moment, um, you talk about the fact that the women's liberation was very much focused on um, the self, you know, the uh, your experience, and not so much a social thing. Is that because of the kinds of women were going into the movement? They were coming from more economically privileged backgrounds, and they had they could actually have the luxury of worry about, worrying about some of these things. Um, yes and no. Um, I. I think that the, one of the main backgrounds to what happened in the 1970s was the huge expansion of higher education uh, for both men and women. Uh, you know, the, in the 1930s, uh, that was the first time even when the majority of Americans graduated from high school. 
So for a lot of that earlier period, the women in the labor force are women who really had very little education by our standards. After World War II, there was this huge expansion, particularly of the big, big uh, public state universities. And so by the late 1960s, you had these large, large groups of women who had been in schools like that, who had seen that they were every bit as good students as men, that in every area they were absolutely as capable and competent. But then they were facing all this uh, uh, discrimination and frustration of their uh, of their hopes and dreams when they got out of school. So in that way, yes, the, the, the big movement that burst out in the late 1960s was primarily a movement of women who were college women, either college students or college graduates. But I don't think it was less a social movement because I think that everything about women's liberation was about women working together in groups, first in consciousness-raising groups where they were really beginning to explore their own experience, but to explore it as a group. Uh, You know, you would be in a consciousness-raising group and you would confess that you were constantly worried about being too fat. And then you would find that every other woman was always also worried about being too fat. And then you started to ask questions about that. Well, what is it that makes us feel so in- inadequate about our bodies? Uh, you even got women who were in groups that were absolutely personal and enough to say, well, I don't really feel like I like sex very much or my sex with my boyfriend isn't very good. And then you would find that a lot of other people would feel that. So I think it was absolutely social, but it was also inward in that women were first beginning to explore their own experience and out of that came this famous slogan, the personal is political. In other words, what you once thought was personal, which is that you always worried about your own body, uh, turned out to be not a personal thing at all, but a large-scale issue of uh, the way beauty standards were uh, sort of imposed upon women. And the movement, um, from what you've written about, you wrote about this, but also uh, we've all experienced this of a certain age, that the movement named a lot of things that had been unnamed, uh, sexual harassment, domestic abuse, uh, a lot of things that were there, but nobody ever really even thought them as being abnormal or not right. It was sort of accepted that um, sexual harassment was going to happen on the job. And that was just normal. That's what the world, the world, the world was. And, exactly. And that's the, the, the naming of things, I think, was one of the biggest contributions of the women's liberation movement. Now, you talk about how they were not, these women in the movement were not very aware of women's history, which I found rather odd. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, is that right? Is that correct? Did I read yes, that correct? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. It, so they were kind of creating women's history on the spot. Exactly, exactly. You know, I I experienced personally uh, an example of that even quite a bit later than the women's movement in um, 1984 when I moved to Madison, Wisconsin and started teaching there. And Madison is a Big Ten school and football is a very, very big deal there. And the the 70,000 person stadium would be packed in every football game. And there was a 
a tradition that was called body passing. I don't know if you've heard of this, but in the the sections particularly where students sat, uh, guys would pick up a girl, uh, a student, uh, until she was being was horizontal and she was being held up by the hands of many men and they would pass her around the stadium from groups of hands to other people's groups of hands and she would end up far from where she belonged and meanwhile she was being handled by her body was being handled by all these strange men now there were one of the issues in this pro in this practice was that the women were really, I think, forced by uh, public pressure to pretend that they liked this, to, to pretend that it was a gas and a kind of a joke. Um, there was a movement which got this not only banned, but people began to re reappraise what they thought this was from an innocent prank by the boys to something that I think a lot of women began to consider sexual harassment. This is not pleasurable. This is not something that we need to, uh, we need to pretend that we like. Uh, I, I find that a really, really good example of the way that these, uh, these things change their meanings as, and get named in a way that really changes our understanding of what's going on. And that was very similar to what happened in lots and lots of office behaviors where, you know, getting pats on the butt and stuff like that, women were supposed to take as uh, acceptable, uh, cute uh, flirtation. And they began to say, no, this is not pleasurable, this is harassment. Okay, let's go on to the, the last chapter, which is uh, Astrid Henry's uh, chapter on what happened um, after mid-1980s with feminism and how it was revitalized. And there was sort of a period there where he had lo lost a lot of political energy, even though uh, it had, still had a lot of cultural power that many people were unaware of. So if you could talk a little bit about that, uh, the new, the, the third wave and now sure. what I'm hearing is the fourth wave. <laughs> yes, and I don't know when we're going to stop calling them waves because, you know, there's waves have a certain regularity in the ocean and they don't in social patterns. So, But anyway, I would say there are two really big changes um, that, well, maybe three really big changes that came up after the 1980s. The first was that a lot of the formal women's liberation groups had been at first overwhelmingly white. And one of the things that happened somewhat later is that all kinds of groups of people of color, African Americans, Latinos, American Indians, Asian Americans began establishing their own groups. And actually many of these people, black feminists, have really, uh, Black feminists in particular have really created a really a sea change in the culture. And in fact, a, a really good example of this today, uh, one of the things that makes me happy is that when I look at television, for example, particularly MSNBC, uh, you see now so many more uh, women of color who are the 
the news people and the interviewers and so on. And, uh, you know, they are not all by any means primarily feminists, but my suspicion is they are all privately feminists and not, none of this would have happened uh, without this kind of movement. So, and, you know, the, the early third wave uh, people included very, very prominently uh, women of color. So that was a very big change. Um, another big change, of course, was the Internet, and that came a little later. But the ability for ideas to travel uh, moved from, you know, the speed of the U.S. mail to, you know, the warp speed of what goes on the Internet. And um, we've all, you know, we know, I now all have this expression that went viral, uh, and we know what that means and how fast people can communicate. And that both means how fast, how quickly people can come to support other things that other people are doing, but also uh, there's a lot of the negative and there's a huge problem of a lot of hate talk uh, against women on the Internet. The third big difference, I think, I think that the second wave, the, the big, big women's movement of the late 1960s and late 1970s tended to be on the hostile, tended to be hostile to the sexualization of women. Uh, this is the period when women started wearing blue jeans and comfortable shoes and uh, letting their hair be natural if they were black and even in, for many of them not wearing makeup, etc. And partly it was a way of saying, uh, uh, rejecting the way that the commercial culture forced women into conceiving of themselves as um, decorative objects, you might say, or seductive objects. Um, I think that more recently, and i Personally, I'm very comfortable with this. Uh, women started saying, hey, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be beautiful and there's nothing wrong with wanting to be sexual. Uh, it's a much more both beauty affirming and sexuality affirming um, uh, sense of a feminist identity. And it, it, with that in mind, it fits very comfortably with the LB. TG uh, movement, uh, etc. So in in that way, I think this movement is very very different. But on the other hand, I think at bottom, there's a lot that's the same. It's just that people don't really uh, feel the need to articulate it. I mean, I can't find anyone among my college students who doesn't think that women have absolutely every right to demand equal wages, equal access to promotion, equal access to leadership. They just take all that for granted. Um, and, you know, they, uh, it's, it's, they, in fact, they tend to, they don't know, since they don't know the history, they tend to think it was always that way. But that's fine with me. I want them to, to just take that for granted and just to be shocked if anyone says otherwise. There's a whole issue here, too, of uh, what I'm calling late feminism um, is uh, uh, Henry talks about this slut walk and yes. this, this fine line between wanting to affirm women's sexual agency and their rights to pleasure and beauty and then how we do that without 
they're trying to reclaim the whole idea of the slut. But I'm wondering right. if that really sort of plays into it in a way that's not helpful. It's it's really difficult to play that, especially when you get on the media. When the media gets a hold of it, it, it yes. you can't control it. You think you can control it while you're protesting on the street. But what happens when it goes through media yes. and it's on Twitter and Facebook, <laughs> Facebook and all that? Uh, what, do you, what are your feelings about that or your ideas about that? I think I'm inclined to agree with you, if I'm hearing you correctly. I know, for example, that when one of the first so-called slut walks happened, um, a, a, a very large a collection of black feminists wrote a letter of protest talking about how those kinds of horrible terms have been hurled not only at all women, but have had particular impact on uh, women of color who have always been so much more vulnerable to sexual violence than uh, uh, than white women have, at least historically. So I think that's a problem. And furthermore, I you know I I I often have to admit to my young younger students that I'm kind of a prude in in relation to them. But I do worry about the oversexualization of the whole culture, and I believe that it is primarily driven by uh, by the capitalist economy and by the you know the constant desire to sell things that are based on that sexualization. Um, so I'm I do have a a lot of nervousness about it, but on the other hand, um, you know. As with so many things, there are positives and there are negatives. I mean, one of the issues that you confront all the time if you teach college students, as I do, is stuff about the so-called hookup culture, and the, uh, which is a, basically a culture of very, very casual sexual relations. And I've learned two things about it. First of all, I think it's exaggerated how many young people are really into that. Uh, and secondly, that it does have one positive side, which is women's, young women's ability to be very assertive about sexuality, uh, as opposed to in my day where you just sat and waited by the telephone and waited for a young man to call you up. Um, I, I do feel terribly nervous about it, and there are, there are times when I actually have come close to believing in censorship when I see these advertisements that have even really very young-looking kids have clothes, when I see these beauty contests where little four-year-old girls get dressed up in bikinis and lipstick and, you know, kind of flip their hips back and forth. Uh, It gives me very, very great pause. Yeah, because it's really not just about sexuality in, in culture. It's about pornography. It's Absolutely. The, it's the pornography nature of it. But it's not yes. just sexuality. It's sexuality kind of put together with power. It's a, yes. And that, that's what makes it. If it was just sexuality, I think most of us could to deal with it. Um, so let me ask you, um, I'm backing up a little bit here, but it was the Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas hearing that Henry really puts mm-hmm. a lot of emphasis on. It. And then 9-11 as being two events that rallied a new generation of young women in, uh, for feminism. And I, mm-hmm. I, I never, you know, I knew, I mean, I knew that Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas was a big deal, but I didn't really see it as a watershed event. Right. 
Well, I I think it was for some people, and I think, of course, particularly for black women. Uh, and I I uh, remember really liking that the idea that when Astrid Henry came up with the idea of starting starting that way, because you know, in our new world of televised everything, it was uh, one of these moments when huge huge numbers of women were absolutely riveted by a public spectacle of a very distinguished, uh, impressive, high-achieving woman being humiliated by this absolute panel of all men. Uh, it, it almost, it's visual symbolism, uh, I think, was just so great it sent uh, people into literal rages. Um, and I do think that that is uh, something that continues and continues to um, reverberate in different ways, which is, you know, um, during the 1970s in the women's movement, one of the songs that became almost like the anthem of the women's movement was Aretha Franklin singing R-E-S-P-E-C-T, Respect. And I do think that, you know, in addition to all the material issues about equal pay and about abortion and about domestic violence, there's also something else, which is just simple respect. And the way that men could get away with uh, that disrespect was, uh, was completely maddening. And that still happens a lot, all the time. And I do think that it has a very great power to... Uh, to make women across a lot of different categories, women across different classes and different races, just say, this is disgusting. So in that sense, I do think it was a very big deal for, for a short time. What about 9-11? 9-11. Well, it's complicated. You know, um, 9-11 in a way has changed everything. Um, in that um, it's, uh, and, and now the rise of ISIS, um, in that it has really, um, I think, greatly reduced the, the personal freedoms that, that Americans have and has resulted in some uh, governmental behaviors that are, I, to me, very threatening. I had, by 9-11, I had moved to New York City. I'm not a New Yorker, but that is where I live now. And... Uh, I experienced it firsthand. Uh, I lived down near the towers. But one of the things that struck me in New York City was, um, you know, there was immediately a lot of um, um, public displays of various kinds of things. There were a lot of people put up a lot of wanted posters uh not, not wanted posters, that's not quite the right word, a little sign with a picture of someone saying, have you seen the whereabouts of so-and-so? And these were almost always, you know, people who they feared were killed in that, um, in that violence. But there were also, you know, many, uh, for example, around a park near where I live, a huge park, people put up white sheets around the whole fence around the park and everybody started writing things on those white sheets and there was a lot of make love not war and peace is the only answer and a lot of people who did not want 
uh, a militarized uh, response to this. And I do think it, it's one of those times that reminded me that gender is terribly involved in American foreign policy. Uh, but on the other hand, um, I certainly don't think that there was any kind of feminist majority that believed that we didn't need to defend ourselves and to try to uh, try to find and uh, you know end uh, this terrorist group and its attacks. Um, I think Henry does talk about the fact that the 9/11 was a very galvanizing event for a world consciousness among uh, young feminists in America that they began to become aware of in, in a significant way of women all over the world. Yes, yes, I think that's true. Although that had been growing because there had been these various UN meetings uh, of uh, uh, women's women's movement representatives from all over the world. And I do think that uh, people who uh, have been, you know, have tried to follow what's been going on. And one of the things we do understand is that there was a time when the United States was kind of the vanguard of feminism, but that that is not any longer the case. And that there actually, uh, you know, for example, the, um, uh, in, in India and in Egypt and in quite a number of places right today, there are major movements against uh, sexual violence against women. Just like here, there's a big movement against sexual violence on campuses. And a lot of these things are, we are in a situation where we could learn as much from people in the rest of the world as they could learn from us. Okay, Linda, you have been very generous with your time, and I do have to ask you because you're such a prominent women's historian. <laughs> I can't. I have to ask you, uh, where where is the state of the field, women's history? The state of the field of women's history. Hmm. Sometimes I'm, I'm kind of disappointed because I think that um, I was lucky enough to be part of it when there was such an excitement of breaking new ground, and I feel very lucky. I feel like it was a lot of fun. I think it has diminished a little bit. I, I, I do think that to some extent we have succeeded in making people who have very, very different topics integrate issues of women and gender in, in them in a different way. But I, I also do sometimes uh, regret the fact that people are not pushing forward with that as much, because there are still many, many areas of study uh, that um, are untapped as yet, where people really need to do a lot more work. But on the other hand, uh, you know, I I do have a lot of faith in young the younger generations of people coming up, precisely because uh, in in history classes and everywhere, they they take certain things for granted, and they are raising questions um, that have it, that still need to be raised. And I think they will go on to do it. And I have a lot of graduate students who are doing, uh, you know, just absolutely wonderful work. If if anything, I think the things that I am most uh, eager to see developed are feminist takes on kinds of topics that are not usually thought as, of as women's history. Uh, one of the major ones is, uh, for example, foreign policy. Um, another one is 
uh, talking about uh, the whole economy. Um, for example, in my department where they, people are developing a curriculum in economic history, but it is really easy to live, leave women out of that because for so long, historically, women's work was not wage-earning work, and therefore it didn't get counted by economists in their understanding of how societies run. So I think there's just still a huge amount of work left to be done. Well, thank you so much, Linda. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger.